All right, it says we're live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the uh, Seeking Context podcast. Fun week. This is Aviation Week at Seeking Context. I am sitting here with my good friend, Jesse Smith, who is an airline pilot. And uh, we are also joined with my friend, Mario Escalante, who is a corporate pilot. And uh, my other friend, Julian Herman in San Diego, who is an instructor pilot in Cessnas for people that are just starting out their aviation career. And uh, this is exciting. It's the first time I've had a co-host with Jesse. I'm not a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the first time I've had a studio audience. <laughs> you are now. First studio audience can, can come on, give me a cameo real quick. Uh, Nate Downing and Jeff Cannon are here with me. <laughs> Glad that you guys could join. We're, uh, we're, <laughs> we're tuning in from uh, Bozeman, Montana. And so for uh, Thea and Amy and Lisa, uh, the workshop on being better husbands went really well <laughs> this morning. And we're doing breakout sessions this afternoon for uh, how to be uh, good parenting in the time of COVID. And, uh, Jesse, I really think I I've seen some real growth <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, from, from everywhere. So. Perfect. Um, so uh, anyway, so I just, um, we'll, we're going to start the structure for today's uh podcast is uh, I'm going to just introduce everyone, then I'm going to talk to Jesse about his career, and then Mario about his career, and then Julian about his career uh, individually, and then we'll uh, come back kind of for a roundtable about what's going on in aviation and you know, some fun stories from things that happen in the course of uh, a career in aviation. So um, just real quick, uh, Jesse, introduce yourself and uh, what you uh, have done all right, just a little background on me. My name's Jesse. I uh, was kind of raised in uh, South Texas and got accepted to the Air Force Academy and uh, finished, uh, started after the Air Force Academy, got, went straight to pilot training, got uh, out of pilot training. I had a DC-9 uh, doing medevac, went three years in, J in Japan out of the Yokota Air Base, flew three years in Japan doing DC-9s after that. My follow-on assignment was the E-3. It's an AWACS airborne radar. And I did that at Oklahoma City at Tinker Air Force Base. Then I got a joint NATO billet. So flew for four and a half years with NATO, uh, which is actually, it's, it's kind of an interesting unit, really cool uh, situation there. It was totally integrated with uh, uh, all the different NATO countries where it would send pilots there. So we, we, we'd show up and you might fly with a Turkish uh, co-pilot, uh, Greek navigator and, uh, you know, a German flight engineer. So you didn't actually, we weren't flying with the U.S. Air Force. It was with a NATO billet. And you were in Germany then, right? And, and the base is actually in Geilenkirchen, Germany, pretty close to Cologne, if you're familiar with that area. And uh, I did that for four and a half years, and then I got sent back to uh, Tinker, finished out my career there, and did another seven years at Tinker flying AWACS there. And... Did a few side tours, uh, if you will, a little side deployments. Got to go uh, do some drone ops in Ethiopia and did that for about six months. But other than that, then I finished out my Air Force career and got hired by, a, we'll just say, a, uh, one of the big four uh, airlines. And I'll, and I'll interject here, uh, you know, uh, Jesse and Mario, um, because of the personnel rules or whatever with uh, large corporations, 
they ask their pilots not to disclose where they work, which is a mystery to me because I would want a company shouting, you know, tell Jesse to tell them where he works, but that's their rules. So that's why we'll be cagey about where they work now, even though they can talk about their Air Force careers openly. So I uh, got hired pretty much uh, before I left active duty. I had a job offer and I actually had multiple job offers and went straight over to the commercial and I've been flying commercial for uh, roughly five years now. So uh, flying on a uh, 737 uh, type airframe, been doing that since uh, about 2015, so. Cool, Mario, how about you? Yeah, um, coming to you guys from uh, Aptos, California, near Santa Cruz on the Monterey Bay. So this is where I grew up. My wife and I both grew up here. Uh, went to the Air Force Academy with Justin and Jesse and uh, the two audience members back there. Uh, graduated and went to pilot training in uh, beautiful Columbus, Mississippi with uh, Jesse. We were there at the same time going through pilot training. And then uh, I got my dream assignment out of there, flying C-141s out of McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey, and did that for three years, flying all over the world, went to every continent except Antarctica. So that was a great introduction to international flying. Uh, after that, I got uh, assigned to the C-5 and flew that out of Travis Air Force Base here in uh, California. So that was great to be close to home again. And then uh, after that, I ended up getting an assignment to Tampa, Florida at McDill Air Force Base to fly the C-37, which is the military version of the Gulfstream, the G-5. And uh, got to fly Secretary of Defense, uh, a lot of congressional members, um, you know, senators, congressmen, uh, four-star generals and admirals all around the world. So that was a really unique opportunity to go do that. Uh, I left active duty after that. And um, that was a nice dovetail into flying uh, corporate. Uh, which is basically the same airplanes that the uh, that I was flying in the Air Force, uh, the G5, and flying the G550 for a uh, big energy company in the Bay Area, and did that for six years, flying all around the world into some pretty dangerous places. I would say sometimes more dangerous than some of the places I went in the Air Force. So that was very interesting flying. Uh, along with that, once I got out of active duty, I. Uh, stayed in the reserves and flew C-5s, continued to fly C-5s in the in the reserves for nine years. So I did both cur uh, concurrently corporate aviation and flying C-5s, which was an interesting balance uh, to do the military and the civilian at the same time. Uh, it was a very busy time, but it was very rewarding too. Uh, so after my time with uh, Big Oil, I uh, went over uh, to another operation to actually stand up their flight department. Um, and I was the chief pilot there initially and uh, stood it up from scratch, which is a very rare thing to do in the corporate aviation business. So that was a very busy, but uh, another unique opportunity to do. And I, I'm still at that company. I've been there for uh, six years and uh, really enjoying it. Cool. Julian, you're just getting started. Uh, yeah, my, my list is uh, not nearly as long as you guys, but uh, yeah, my name is Julian Herman. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I moved up to Santa Cruz when I was 18 to go to UC Santa Cruz, where I got my bachelor's degree. Um, I traveled around the world for a year after, after college just to kind of find myself a little bit and uh, got a job straight out of that, uh, working for Enterprise Car Rental. And in my time there is when I decided that I wanted to take the jump into becoming a pilot. And it was always in the back of my mind, but 
I really had that decision made once I was working for Enterprise and been flying for two years now. Um, moved down to San Diego to learn how to fly. I went to ATP flight school out of Carlsbad. Um, finished the program in one year, coming out with um, a multi-engine instructor rating. So I'm a CFI, CFWI, and an MEI. And currently live in San Diego and have a job working out of Gillespie Field as a flight instructor. So working on getting those hours and uh, right in the sky. All right, cool. So uh, at this point, so I'm going to uh, take Mario and Julian off the screen. I'm going to have a conversation with Jesse and uh, you guys can just uh, hang out and I'll uh, be with you in a minute. <laughs> Great. All right. Okay, cool. So, Jesse. Yes. You got recruited to play basketball at the Air Force Academy. I did. So, I kind of, honestly, I tell people I, I kind of fell back, bass backwards into uh, aviation. I never, it wasn't a huge, growing up, it wasn't a dream of mine to be a pilot. I just kind of fell into it. Uh, I was a, I would say I was uh, above mediocre high school basketball player <laughs> in, uh, finished my high school career in North Carolina. How tall are you? <laughs> I am uh, uh, right around 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, so uh, I got recruited by a couple smaller schools, and then I got this recruitment from the Air Force Academy, and I'm like, this sounds pretty cool. It's a really good school. Uh, decided to go there, and that's kind of when, when I showed up there. You know, I, I've been familiar with aviation, but that when I showed up there, that's really when I decided this is something I could maybe do. Uh, and so uh, four years there, uh, really was not something that I grew up as a dream to be a, an airline pilot. So that's kind of the background. Cool. So um, you had a pretty rewarding Air Force career, would you say? I said, yeah, it was a very good career. I, I had a lot of fun. I got to do some stuff that uh, a lot of people would never in their lives imagine the Air Force would set you up to do. Uh, I think one of the coolest things I got to do was fly with NATO uh, just because not many people get to fly in a totally integrated international environment. There's a lot of people I know. There's uh, some of the F-16 guys will send uh, send you over to Denmark, uh, some to the Netherlands, and it's just it's usually one off that gets to do that. Uh, I know that the KC-10 guys have a uh, in, international exchange with the uh, Dutch, uh, but those you, you get to fly with only with the Dutch with this. This day, I mean. When I was with NATO, you'd show up and uh, it was totally integrated. I think all the, the members that were there was uh, U.S., Canada, Germany. Uh, the Brits had one guy there, the Dutch, the Danes, the uh, uh, Turkish, the Greeks, the Portuguese, the Spanish. So we had all those member nations there. So you could show up any, on any given day and you'd have a, a Portuguese guy flying with you, a, a Spanish guy flying with you. And it was uh, it was an interesting uh, kind of delve into crew resource management and how you can uh, really meet just how SOPs are become extremely important when you got people who don't have, I would say, a very good command of the English language flying with you. You have to really base yourself on uh, SOPs and some other stuff. But that was one of my highlights there. Standard operating procedures. Standard operating procedures. So I remember. Uh, <laughs> so I did. Uh, uh, so career-wise, I did. I got to do the the job at NATO. Uh, I did uh, a really really fun thing in the to start of my career, which was flying medevac. So I got to fly. That was when you're in Japan. In Japan, so it was. They basically took a DC nine and uh, cut all the seats out and refitted the oxygen system and had it set up to where they could fly either passengers or patients. 
and uh, it was really set up for medevac. And so I got to do some really interesting things on that. Uh, you know, cool. doing uh, a lot of uh, one of my most memorable ones on that one was uh, we had to, I got launched off on an urgent mission uh, to go pick up uh, a guy in my squatter whose wife, it was his wife and her, she was going into premature labor. So that was kind of cool. You actually got to fly something for your, your own squadron. But uh, that was uh, the, so I got to do DC nine medevac, which uh, not a lot of people got to do. And then I got to do a joint NATO billet, which was uh, not a lot of guys get to do that. So I was very cool. Did you make friends like the, when you were in Germany, did you, was it integrated in a way that you made friends the way you do in an air force squadron? Yeah. With the, with the locals the and all the other internationals. Yeah. We had a, uh, uh, I would say, he was he was uh, Italian and he had flown uh, C-130s out of Pisa. Was their big C-130 base, if I remember right? But he was married to an American uh, girl, and her and my wife became friends. And so we'd go to their house all the time. So yeah, we had a lot of uh, the, it was the international people did kind of stovepipe a little bit where they would hang out with people that they knew. I think that was a lot based on the fact that. Uh, the language barriers, you know, sometimes when you get into a social scenario, uh, you rely more on your language and what you're comfortable with. But we had a lot of international friends. Cool. It was cool. Got to meet. uh, And I still have friends. That was always a hard thing when you uh, go for your security clearance and they ask you to disclose all your foreign friends. (laughs) It took a while, you know, because I had, you know, people that I met from Turkey, Greece and all these different countries. So, yeah, we did. That's cool. Uh, so you said at the end of your career, your Air Force career, you had a lot of job offers when you were like looking at the airlines. Yeah. I, so I uh, applied to FedEx, uh, UPS, uh, and then all the all the majors. I applied to American, Delta, United, Southwest. Uh, you know, at the time, some of them were hiring, some of them weren't. You kind of you know, you could come out of the, the military with the best resume there is, but if this airline's not hiring, you're not going to get a job there. It's just, that's the way it is. At the time, uh, UPS wasn't really hiring and uh, FedEx was hiring just a little bit and American wasn't hiring at all. So, uh, but yeah, I, I did have multiple job offers. Right. And uh, you, did you look at corporate like where Mario went? I actually talked to Mario about corporate. <laughs> and he, 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 he already had his job. He had already, Mario had been out for a while and I talked about it and asked if it would be a good idea. And Mario did every, you can ask Mario later, but he did everything he could to steer me away from it. Saying, <laughs> <laughs> saying that it's a, it's a tough life. You know, it's, you, you got to get on with a good corporate division to start off with. Mm-hmm. And if you're not on with a good corporate division, there's a lot of requirements to be on a beeper a lot and your schedules are, uh, never the same and it's it's uh it can be a little harder on the on the family life so right well what is it what is it like at your current job and like your day-to-day or your your typical month or week so let's let's just uh, i would probably say pre-covid you know because mm-hmm. everything's changed since covid but uh pre-covid you know i was just getting to the point uh everything in the airlines is seniority based i started off based out of a uh a junior base. And then I got a senior base a little closer to home, but it was a senior base. You kind of play this game where you're, you're uh, playing with your seniority. So I got to the point where uh, pre COVID, I was just about to the point where I could hold weekends off and uh, you kind of have to give a take. So I could hold weekends off uh, probably 
three weekends a week, uh, a month off, uh, and I could have a set schedule. So in the, in the airlines, we call this having a line. You're, so there's two ways to do this. You can have a line or you can be on reserve. If you have a line, that's basically saying, I have a set schedule. I know what my schedule is going to be for the whole month. Or if you're on reserve, you don't know what your schedule is going to be. You know I'm on reserve these days. You know, right. whatever, you know, I'll be on reserve Monday through Thursday this week, maybe next week, Tuesday through Friday. But you don't know what you may do something that day. You may not. They may call you. They may not. Uh, it just depends on, you know, the airlines, like anything, have to have the ability to flex in case someone, you know, gets in a car wreck or gets sick and can't come to work. Right. So uh, prior to COVID, my schedule was just about to the point where I was I was holding a line and I was holding weekends off. And I could just about get rid of a uh, night flying. And so, would you say that it's a lifestyle that you liked or that you do like? Let's talk pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about the air, the airline lifestyle. Was that for me? It, yeah, it, just so. it, it's a hard lifestyle for me. It was hard to, you know, in the military, we got used to this thing where, you know, at least in the E3, you would deploy for six months at a time. So before you deployed, you could get everything in order. You could make sure all the, you know, everything you needed to do was done. And then you could just walk out the door and be done and just go deploy. Uh, airlines is a little bit different. You're four days here, three days home, four days gone, two days home, six, you know, three days gone, six days home. So it's, it's a little bit more uh, sporadic. And you deal with things a little more chopped up and segmented, uh, but it's still it's still hard being away is still being away. You know, right. well, would you say that Fia and the girls are uh, like you're gone a lot in the military, but you're gone a lot intermittently now? Right. So the difference was they could mentally prepare themselves, and they knew I was going to be gone. And then when I was home, I was home. The difference now is you're gone, you're home, you're gone, you're home, you're gone, you're home. And so you deal with things the best you can uh, when you're home so that when you do have to leave in four days, the launch mode, you know, all the, all the things that you need to take care of are taken care of, you know? Right. So the pay's good. The pay's, the pay's very good. Uh, but it is, it's for people who can't handle that sporadic schedule. Uh, it's very hard, you know? Yeah. And I know a lot of people, and what, what's interesting is a lot of people, once they get to the seniority that they can do this, they start bidding out backs. So they start, uh, when I say bidding, that's, they choose that. That's what their choice is. So they'll try to, uh, you know, out of, uh, let's just say, an outback would be leaving maybe Dallas to Seattle and back to Dallas. And that's your flight for the day. And then you come back to your home in Dallas and you spend the night and you're at home. So is there, there a point in your career where you could do all out and backs and be home every night? Yes. You, bet it's, you have to be senior enough. Those go very high, okay. seniority-wise. So... Cool. All right. Well, I'll bring Mario in. So, uh, Mario, Jesse fell into aviation on accident. <laughs> I feel like you <laughs> the Air Force Academy more intentionally, but tell me about like, your desire to yeah. get into aviation. Uh, yeah, it was. It was from day one. I mean, before I can, you know, the first day I can remember, I wanted to be, I wanted to fly. So, uh, you can ask my parents. They said one of my first words was airplane. So, I mean, it was in me to the, in the beginning. I didn't, I didn't want to do anything else. So, you know, my whole career has been based upon this, you know, 
childhood desire to fly and, um, you know, just made it happen. And Air Force Academy was definitely one of the steps to do that. Um, I didn't really know. I didn't have like a military background. My family wasn't military. Um, you know, I, none of them had gone to college. So, um, you know, I was the first in my family to go to college. Um, and, you know, to, to be a pilot, you know, to be an officer, you got to go to college. So, you know, some way I had to do it. I uh, went to Houston Davis first out of high school because I, I did apply to the Air Force Academy my first year out of, out of high school, but I just didn't know if I wanted to make that kind of commitment yet. And uh, I went, ended up going to UC Davis and then reconsidering it, went out to the academy for a, a visit and uh, spent a day with a cadet. And then after that, I'm like, yeah, I think I can do this. Reapplied and uh, yeah, I got back in and, and met you guys. Cool. Um, did, uh, did you get accepted and then defer or did you not apply before you went to UC Davis? No, I, I got about half. I got about halfway into the process, and I just, I just pulled out of the process. I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't get a. Uh, but I had to go through everything else. I had to go through my congressman at the time it was Leon, Leon Panetta, um, former Secretary of Defense. Um, he, uh, you know, was my nominating official here in uh, Santa Cruz, and I had to go interview twice. So, you know, that made for a little bit of awkward conversation. But they actually appreciated the you know, my candor is saying, I didn't know if it was the right thing for me, but you know, now I do. So I think they appreciated that and uh, gave me a second chance. So I was pretty fortunate there. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, so I guess you gave a little highlights earlier, but uh, just tell me about like your Air Force career a little bit. Um, yeah, um, I mean, I, I started out in, you know, airlift. It's, it's what I have always wanted to do. Um, you know, as I was growing up, I, I really wanted to be an airline pilot. Um, I loved, you know, international travel. Like I got to do when I was uh, in my teens, um, you know, and I knew I wanted part of that world. Um, so, you know, getting into airlift was, you know, my number one goal to do. And so I ended up getting the, you know, the aircraft that I, that I, I wanted to do, the C-141, which I knew did everything. It went all over the world, did all kinds of missions. Um, and it was great. It, it, you know, I got to do air refueling. I got to do airdrop formation flying, um, you know, go all over the world, uh, you know, low levels, everything. It was, it was just a, a really neat, um, all encompassing job. And it, it definitely was one of my favorite, you know, it's my first airplane. So, you know, it was, it was great. And it's, and it was exactly what I wanted to be doing. That's cool. Uh, yeah. at the end of your career, uh, you uh, went corporate. I guess, tell me about kind of when you started uh, looking for jobs in the civilian sector and then you kind of went part-time Air Force. Like how, what happened in that time of your life? Well, you know, I, as I flew airlift for two back-to-back -back assignments with the C-141 and C-5, usually the Air Force would give you kind of a, a break. Uh, they'd give you a, you know, what they call like a shock absorber assignment, something nice to go fly, you know, a Learjet or a Gulfstream or uh, 737 if you wanted. So um, I was up for that. I had two back-to-back -back operational assignments, so I was able, you know, to get this kind of more posh assignment. So when I showed up, we went through civilian training because there's no military school for the D5. Um, you go through the simulator training at Savannah with uh, Flight Safety International. So when I showed up to Flight Safety for my first day of class for G5 initial, I see everybody's name tags in there and I see Hewlett Packard, um, you know, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, 
you know, General Electric. I'm like, who? And I like, who are you guys? They're like, we fly the same plane you do. And I had no idea. I had no idea that world actually existed. I just thought, you know, I was going to go to the airlines and that was going to be it. So that in itself was a huge eye opener uh, to me. And that kind of shaped, you know, as I went along with uh, my my assignment, flying the three years in the in the in the Air Force of the Gulfstream. Every time I went back to recurrent, I did a little networking. Uh, Hewlett Packard was uh, in there, and they were based in San Jose. Um, and I made you know some contacts and started asking about jobs in the Bay Area. And um, you know, as my end of time in active duty started, um, I started to use those contacts and, and you know figure out where to go next. I figured you know I really enjoyed my job at Tampa, flying the Gulfstream and and the and the mission we were doing. Um, so. I thought, you know, it makes it makes perfect sense. I'm already type rated in this air, airplane um, and there's jobs in the Bay Area for this. So it just made it a nice, you know, it was, it was a nice seamless way to go that, that way. And I, I really enjoyed the the mission that it did. It was a little more personal. You know, you knew who you were flying with, um, you know, as part of a corporate aviation, you know, who you're flying with every day. Uh, it's a very small group. So I, you know, I enjoyed that. But that's how I got into yeah. corporate. Um, it, it, I remember when you were looking for corporate jobs, it seemed like it was stressful though, that it, that wasn't an easy job to land. Is that accurate? That's correct. Um, when, when I left active duty, it was right at the top of the recession. So, um, you know, there were no jobs to be had and the job that I, that I thought I had with Hewlett Packard, um, I got inter interviewed there. Uh, I didn't get a job offer, but they said, you know, we just need to figure out how many we're hiring, but we definitely want to pick you up. When I moved back, everything had fallen through. So um, they, they couldn't, they were gonna, went through a whole fleet change and yeah, it was very stressful. Um, fortunately, I stayed in the reserves um, and I got hired with my C5 unit. Um, I couldn't fly at the time, but I could still at least go do some drill weekends there to make some pay. But um, yeah, finding a job uh, was very stressful in that time. I, I was just very fortunate. Um, the the uh, company that did pick me up had some former Air Force people that knew my saw my resume and and knew my squadrons and called around so i was able to get an interview with uh that company and uh they you know they had at the time of the recession they had 750 applicants for uh for two positions and i was fortunate to get one wow so it was you know a little bit of luck in there but i'll take it you know right well it sounds like you're uh in that world people really do call around and like every job you had mattered previous. It did. Yeah, it did. And that's the thing about corporate aviation. It's a very small community. Um, you know, everybody knows everybody. So um, that's, you know, your contacts are everything. Your reputation is everything, um, you know, because the, the pool is so small. Um, so, and, you know, they like to hire from people that they know, you know, corporations that they know, People know other people. You know, you see them at recurrent training. You see the same people from the same companies. So uh, your reputation and your name gets around. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, what is it like uh, being a corporate pilot? So, and you can just explain, like, you fly the G five and G six. I think you. What, what are you? Yes. And what do you actually? G six. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> yeah, well, it's well, much day to day. Like, what is a you know every month you're flying off to. You're flying all the time. You're flying once a month. And let's talk pre-COVID, like in, in normal days. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the cool thing about this job. There is no day to day. It's always different. Um, things that the places you're going are always changing. Um, you know, we do go to the, some of the same places, but, you know, new places pop up all the time. 
the itinerary changes. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it keeps it pretty exciting. You get, and you're involved in the planning as a, as a, as a pilot and a crew, you know, uh, and it, you know, it really is a, is a different world than the airlines altogether in that way. You're, you're much more involved in doing the day-to-day -day operation of, of the airplane. You're, you know, you're, you're in charge of getting everybody training. You know, we have one person who does schedules all the training. We have one person who keeps up on all the publications, you know, as, as a corporate flight department, you have many other ancillary duties that you have to keep up just to keep the department running. So, um, you know, it, it can be a lot of work, but like a day-to-day, it, there really isn't one. I could fly two days a month. Some months I could fly 14 days a month. So it could be to New York and back, or it could be a two-week trip jaunt all around Asia. Um, so the good thing about flying for a big company, and this is what I was trying to get through to Jesse when I was explaining it to him, is that, you know, big companies, um, you know, they have a, a set schedule. You know, their execs don't go anywhere unless you know there's they're planned for just like in the military if a general's going somewhere they got to prepare for it so the schedule is is pretty well known a month or two in advance um there are some drop downs but you know not many but if you're with a smaller company or it's a charter operation everything's in the air all the time and um you know the jobs with the larger companies are hard to get and you just need to know where you're going and what kind of flight department you're stepping stepping into because each department is unique so each schedule is unique so i can really just only talk for the departments i've been in or you know ones that i've heard of but each one is different and you just have to know what you're getting yourself into one of the cool benefits for jesse is that he and his family get to fly all over the world you've taken your family to europe first class yeah, accidentally because of standby seats <laughs> being available. But uh, do you get do you get flight benefits on other airlines, or on on, on or is there or are none of those benefits available to you? Uh, only the ones that Jesse gives me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, some we fly a lot of commercial, so we rack up a lot of points. If we fly overseas, we fly business class, and um, you know so. We get a lot of hotel and airline points, and if we go somewhere, I mean, uh, family members aren't allowed to to ride on corporate aircraft, but um, you know, some are private owners. They allow some private owners actually allow that, but you know, in a big corporation, you know, there's a lot of legal issues involved. That's usually not the case, but you know, I definitely have taken my wife on. You know, if I go somewhere, I'll fly her out to meet me. If I'm sitting, say, in Barbados for you know St. Martin for four days, you know, she's come and met me out there. You know, because we're just sitting on the ground there being a being a tourist. So um, it's kind of nice. So I've had my mom with me in London. Um, you know, my son met me in, in Seoul. So uh, it's been pretty cool. Um, I've had a lot of opportunities to do that because our ground times sometimes are pretty long. That's pretty cool. Is the um, talk about like, you know, with your family and being away from home, is it better with this job than your Air Force experience? And and uh, and is it something that you think is sustainable for you know maintaining a good family life? Yeah, I think. I mean, what I'm doing. I mean, I definitely know my schedule a lot more than I did in the Air Force. Um, the Air Force was tough. I mean, especially flying airlift. I mean, you could be gone within you know 12 hours notice. You're gone. You know, especially during the height of all the wars. I mean, you were just on alert all the time, and you never knew when you were going to be back. Um, I could be gone, you know, your utter orders are cut for three to four weeks. So you could be back in two days, could be back in four weeks. You never knew. Um, so that was very stressful on the family. One of the reasons that I did leave active duty, um, you know, our family just kind of 
had had enough um, of that. You know, not every family's cut out for it. You know, most you guys who stayed in 20 years for, you know, active duty, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Um, so this job going to this was, was a lot nicer. And in the reserves, um, you know, you're, you're kind of caught, you're a part time military person. You make it as busy as you want, which is kind of nice. So it provides that balance. You, know, you have a civilian career that's your primary, and your reserve career is is not. And they they realize that. So it's kind of nice. It, they allow you to to develop that balance. You can work as hard or not as hard as you want to in the reserves of the guard. It's kind of nice. Yeah, that's cool. But, cool. Well, I'm gonna um, hear about uh, somebody just starting their career. So I'll switch over to Julian. Be back with you in a minute, Mario. <laughs> All right. Julian, you're still here. I'm still here. All right. Well, um, you started your career. I remember, like in March, you were. Did you have a job? I can't remember exactly. That like, you know, COVID ruined everybody in the world's life. And yeah. Stuff. But yours just it kind of just blindsided your plans. So uh, you had to get a job in the middle of the pandemic. So how did what happened, and how did you get a job? Right. Yeah. So I finished my training on March 27th of 2020. So right as the U.S. was shutting down, everything was being shut down. And I was like, okay, great. Like, let's see, you know, I just got done. So I'm going to start looking for jobs in the area. And you know, flight schools, like some of them were still open and operating. And a lot of them were shutting down because they had people getting COVID. So they had to shut down for a period of time. So I just, you know, put myself out there and applied around and, I had a couple schools get back to me saying, you know, they're not hiring. They're shut down till uh, June. So I was like, okay, that's three months right there. Some of them were like, yeah, we're not hiring right now, but we'll get back to you soon. And other ones just ghosted nothing. So waited around and, you know, put a, put applications in and followed up with these companies and still they're like nothing. And I had a reference from one of the pilot examiners in the area that was on my resume and he was reaching out to one of the flight schools, you know, putting in a good word for me. And they're just telling him, it's like, there's just nothing available right now. So, um, I just kind of sat back and I was lucky enough to get on unemployment. So I wasn't financially going to, uh, a deep hole because I didn't go the military route where, you know, you get paid to learn how to fly or not necessarily pay, but it's all, it's all covered. Right. Where this cost me just the whole year is like a hundred grand through ATP with, and they, they advertise like 76,000, but with all the check rides and everything else that came with it, it turned out to be like a hundred grand a year. And if you were to factor in like living expenses as well. So I was, Still, still in a hole right now. Um, but one week, I just—it was like later on into COVID, so it was like late uh, September. I just started walking into some of the schools with my resume in hand. Just I saw that they were operating. I was flying out of one of the flying clubs just to stay proficient. And uh, one of the flight clubs or flying schools, the one that I'm hired at now, they um, took my resume and. They're like, yeah, I think we might have something for you. And they hired me within like a few days. So I was really happy. Door to door, handing out your resume in person. Yeah. Handing it like during the pandemic, I was walking in with a mask and stuff and being, you know, courteous. I was just like, hey, looking for a job. I have this experience. And, you know, they'd seen like when I finished my program and everything. So I'd been kind of out of the game for a while. But 
I was, I was staying proficient and flying as much as I could afford just based on, you know, government pay. And, um, yeah, they hired me within a week, which was awesome. Um, and they're saying they're getting like 50 applicants, 50 to a hundred applicants a day. Like all these flight schools are getting hammered with applicants because so many people were out of work or all these flight instructors that had been at 1500 hours and they're just about to go to the regionals, like instructors that I knew from ATP got sent home from their training going to sky West and, and now they're out of a job and, you know, probably still aren't even back in there. So, um, it's very, very competitive, especially in San Diego, just being a desired place to live. So I started like thinking about other options of, of moving and then I got this job. So I was happy, happy to land it. And I want to start, I wasn't getting a lot of hours, you know, like maybe like a few hours a week, just one student who wasn't flying that much, but I was like, you know, it's, it's better than buying the hours right now. So I was, uh, I was just happy and felt very fortunate to, to get the job and right yeah how many hours of instructing do you have now i've got about 40 of dual given and i got hired in october so it's been pretty slow it was just yeah. about to start picking up um and then yeah like i had mentioned before we went live i, I just broke my toe so now i can't fly for a few weeks and uh it's not it wasn't a glorious surfing accident was it no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> what What happened, Julian? <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, was doing some yoga at home, and I've got a cat. And if you got a cat running around, I'd put him away if you're ever doing yoga because I was jumping from, uh, like, forward fold to a plank, and uh, he ran under, so I didn't want to crush him. He, like, went right where my foot was going to go, and I put my foot down awkwardly, and sure enough, I snapped my toe pretty good. And uh, I can't really put much pressure on it right now. It's been about a week. So yeah, I'm I'm out. It's been it's been a roller coaster of 2021 because this company that hired me within a week, um, actually like first week into 2021, they're like we're letting you go um, because they were supposed to have like 10 new students come in in January, and all of them got pushed back until later in the year just due to the COVID. They either weren't allowed with visa purposes or their country wasn't leaving them or just who knows why so the whole everything was being put on pause so they're like yeah we're letting you go luckily i was teaching a ground school at the time so i was just teaching an instrument ground school and i was like hey can i finish up the ground school with these students i only have like a few more days so i went back in every day to to teach the ground school and finish it up and then the same guy who was telling me that they're going to let us go was like, actually, we're going to hold on to you. And here's like three more students. So I was like, all right, great. Like got my job back. Things are looking good. And now toe bust. So <laughs> I'm, uh, that's rough. And you're going to be out for a few weeks, maybe. Yeah. I'm hoping I can be flying again in like three weeks, but we had to disperse all my students because we can't, we didn't want to put them on pause just because, you know, I have an injury they're they're here to um get their ratings as fast as possible some of them are just part 61 looking for their ppl and the the others are 141 so they're from korea and they're trying to get their uh <laughs> is that a crawler <laughs> um, the, the wait staff is being very, very <laughs> helpful around here <laughs> much, much needed much needed um so yeah uh the other students just had to they had to uh, keep up their training. So they put them with other instructors for now. And I'm just hoping that these new students that were supposed to be coming in January will be here by 
mid-March or beginning of April, right when I can get back in and maybe get a couple of those students because they didn't fire me right off the bat with this broken toe. So, Right. Well, yeah. so talk about how your job works. Like it sounds like you, you have one student if you don't break your toe and you take him through the whole program yourself. Yeah, so this school is part – 141 as well as part 61 so they get a lot of foreign students coming in uh, mainly from korea but there's a couple students from mexico and and europe as well and those students are usually coming in on like a career path program so they start with private pilot and then they go to get their instrument and then they go to um, commercial multi-engine and then they get their comp single and some of them will go on to become a flight instructor to build more time or some of them will just go back to their country and um go straight to uh, an airline that they have a contract with. Um, and then there's part 61 people like they take in anyone because they're, I mean, they're struggling to, to hold on themselves as a company just because they lost so many students and they're supposed to be getting new students coming in. So they're like, all right, we'll take 61 people, we'll take 141, like whatever, you know? Um, so yeah, I'll, depending on what they're training on, like I had a guy that they gave me just as a commercial single engine add-on. So he's already a commercial pilot. So all I had to do was train him up on some of the single engine maneuvers and he was ready for a check ride. Or as if they give me a zero time private pilot, I, you know, start square one with a little ground school and they, they get given like an online ground school that they can do. Um, just get ready for the knowledge test as well as just get a little background and, and flying and aviation knowledge before they, they hit to the sky. And I definitely preach that to them to like get a good background before you just get in a plane and start flying because that's going to be overwhelming already at first. So it's like good to have a base. Um, but yeah, just depending on where they're at with their training, I'll, I'll start from there and get them ready for whatever they're looking to, uh, to achieve, whether that's a private pilot or get their instrument rating or you name it. Um, I'm certified to get, give multi-engine check or multi-engine instruction as well. I haven't used that uh, certification since I got my multi-engine rating. So definitely we need a little brush up on, on some of the multi-engine aerodynamics and, and just flying a multi-engine plane. Cause pretty much all I've been flying is Cessna 172s and Piper warriors. So, uh, yeah. What, what do you clear on a, on an hour of flying cash? Like, like I assume you aren't making quite the uh, salary that Jesse is, um, but I'm just curious, like how difficult it is to kind of make ends meet. And I've heard that it's pretty slim pickings at the start. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's definitely pretty, it's been pretty tough because I just get paid on my hours of instruction given. So I can charge for ground time as well, pre and post flight, but it's 25 bucks an hour. Um, just for the time flying. So you can imagine if I was only putting up 10 hours in the week of, of flying that pocket in 250 cash, which is not, not super sustainable, especially living in San Diego where rents is pretty, pretty expensive. So I was, I was hoping to uh, start pushing and getting some more hours, but right. now again. Cool. What is your, uh, your, your goal, if your long-term goal, or do you know? for like a uh, long-term career path in aviation? Uh, my current track and goal has been to get to the, you know, 1500 hours and get to the regionals and then go from there, unless some other opportunity that was just too good to, um, to pass came my way. I would take that, like, you know, maybe like a private jet job with like a single client or if a corporate 
company came around, but obviously for the corporate job, it's who you know, right? So um, my my path forward has been definitely regionals and getting to one of the bigs eventually. Uh, and so with, like pre-COVID, what was your estimated time to get that 1,500 hours? How many years? Yeah. Uh, I was planning to be by 20, like by March 2022, be 1,500 hours. Um, but now it's it's definitely pushed back about a year. I was hoping by the time I turned 30 that I'd be getting at least the regionals, but looking more like 31. So t- about to turn 29 in a week. And uh, so old. <laughs> yeah, so I got I got plenty of years to fly. I, I just, you know, it's just testing the patience a little bit. And it's all right. You know, it's I'm I'm been patient and it'll come. It's just uh definitely ready to get more hours and, and get there. Yeah, I'm sure. Cool. I'm going to bring Mario back in. And uh, now I'm just kind of interested to talk to hear from all of you about like what's happening with COVID and what's going on in your industry. So Jesse, what's happening with the airlines? Well, from the airline standpoint, uh, it's no real mystery. There's, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of flights, you know, so basically all these different airlines, these major airlines uh, are running at about, my understanding right about 50% of pre-COVID, you know, so obviously if you had X amount of pilots and your schedule now is 50% of what it was, you have half of the normal, you know, so they've taken a lot of the flying and uh, I would say diluted it, you know, so uh, I don't know really much, you know, I think since March, I should have counted these up, but I might've flown seven trips since March of last year of last year. Wow. Yeah. And you, and you, but you've been, the you've been paid. Well, yes. <laughs> we have people in the shop. The audience is the studio. There's Alex or a gate in the studio audience. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, 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 they, they have to make a choice. They either have to pay us and pay us our, our con- contractual uh, or furlough us. And, and, uh, there's a lot of people in the industry that receive furlough letters. Some uh, have chosen to do other diff things. You know, uh, some of the airlines have chosen to go uh, and, and alter the contract with letters of agreement. Uh, so, uh, but yes, overall, it has been diluted drastically. Uh, the, I think the prognosis is much, much better. Uh, across the industry, there, I know, uh, I know Amer- American. Delta and United, this was their big time anyway for retirements. They were about to hit a, uh, an American had already hit it because American had a, a, their demographics were much different, but they were having natural retirements anyway. So in the, in the airlines, uh, part one, uh, for the airline commercial airlines, you can only fly until you're 65 years old. So there's this natural, uh, progression where you force people out of the industry, right? Mm -hmm. 65. Well, so they can program this out and uh, United, American was hitting a lot. I think Americans was big, bigger. United's is further down the road, but Delta's is like two or three down the road, two or three years down the road, where they're going to start retiring six, seven, eight hundred people a year is what you're going to see retiring. So we were, that was kind of a natural shock absorber to the industry. But then we also saw many of the airlines offer early retirement to people. Most of the people who took that were probably 62 or older. You didn't see a lot of 60-year-olds take that. So that, that just kind of pushed that bell curve a little bit, accelerated a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, overall, not a lot of flying. No one's hiring. 
no one's hiring. So once again, it doesn't matter if your if your resume is great if you have you know. So uh, as what you're doing is you're you're kind of uh, kind of equated to a logjam, you know. So you got a lot of people who are building hours at the regionals, building hours in the uh, airlines, and once this logjam opens up, there's going to be a uh, a lot of hiring coming. That's my my uh, prognosis. I think that the prognosis is good for someone like Julian, but is what it did is it shifted his timeline to the right. Significant. Uh, I, I, you know, personally, I don't think it's significant. I think it's a year to two, one or two years to the right. You know, is what it, it, I think will change because those natural retirements are going to eat out a lot of people. They were they were uh, predicting a huge pilot shortage coming in the next ten years. Uh, obviously, uh, things have changed. Uh, we'll have to see what the industry does, how it bounces back with business travelers because. The bread and butter for most of these airlines is their business travel. I would say with the exception of Southwest, Southwest probably has more leisure than business travel. Yeah. Um, That's interesting because like the things in the business world are everybody's realizing you don't have to travel. You don't even have to go into work. So that could, there could be some structural shifts. It could alter things, right? But I also talked to a couple of people. Uh, uh, My brother-in-law for one works for a major tech company and where he basically goes out and sells a lot of these infrastructure things. He goes, uh, he's very lucky because he doesn't have to travel right now. His, uh, but he goes, his prediction is as soon as someone starts traveling, I have to travel because business has always been done face to face. And the people who can do, if you can sell something, it's, it's, you can sell it in person better than you can on Zoom. Right. So we'll see how the natural evolution of it is, but it has changed the market a little bit because people are realizing maybe I don't need to do this meeting in right. in person. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I think that's the big question mark is what will happen with the business travelers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think short term wise, we're seeing an increasing bookings across the at least what I'm I'm, I'm not privy to this knowledge, but I'm seeing uh, you know when you look at the load factors going on right now and how many flights uh i was in chicago yesterday at o'hare and it was busy it was packed chicago was packed Mm -hmm. uh you know during the i think i went through uh some i went through houston airport during the pandemic and it was a ghost town denver and it was a ghost town uh but they're starting to come back i was in denver not too long ago it was packed uh chicago yesterday and it was packed oh that's that's encouraging uh, people, the other, the flip side is people are also starting to realize you can't stop COVID necessarily. You can't put your life on hold forever. So people are accepting the risk and they're going out there, they're wearing their mask and they're deciding, you know, I have to go to this wedding. I have to go to this anniversary or this get together. Right. And so bookings are increasing. I think over the short term, uh, you'll see uh, an increase where I, my guess is it'll jump from probably 50% of the pre COVID numbers to probably 70 or 80 percent and then the big question mark will probably be business travel what happens with that so right mario what's going on in corporate you guys you haven't flown much yeah neither yeah personally yeah our 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 company hasn't flown anything no no business trips uh since march so we've just been flying for currency is all we've been doing um but it just depends in this in this business it depends what your company culture is uh, depends what line of uh, you know business that your corporation is in. So some of my friends who are flying for healthcare companies are flying quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing they're still doing you know business all around the world. 
um, where you see a real robust uh, business going on is in the charter business. Um, a lot of people don't want to take commercial airliners right now, so they're chartering their own. Um, whereas before they might have taken business class or first class, well, they're just opting to, um, you know, charter their own G4 or, you know, uh, Challenger and go across the country. <laughs> we should. <do> that. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you guys do that up there? <laughs> I could have flown you. Um, so, you know, you see that really on fire right now. The charter business is kind of off the charts, um, as well as the private owner um, operations that are, you know, much smaller. Um, but we'll see how that goes forward. Uh, like Jesse says, there's a lot of, you know, our company's still running and, you know, everybody's doing everything from, from Zoom and at home. So we'll see how the business travel picks up again um, when it does. Um, but like I said, it kind of depends on a corporate culture. We have more conservative culture. They don't want to take any chances. Whereas like some of the other industries, they take a little more chance. They want to travel still. Um, it's actually really hard to travel internationally right now, but you can do it. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, pitfalls and regulations with the COVID and the testing and, you know, how you get back into customs. And it seems like it's getting more strict as, as we're getting, you know, toward the uh, vaccination phase here. But, uh, yeah, we'll see where it ends up as far as the business travel. That's, that's, the big, that's the big question mark out there. Cool. So for Jesse and Mario, like for people like Julian starting out or maybe people that are getting to the end of their Air Force careers, uh, any advice on how to get a job in your industry? Uh, I, I can only speak to my path and, and what I thought helped me. Uh, Mario mentioned this a little bit already, but I think networking is more important than people think. Uh, it's especially hard if you're active duty. Uh, if you're in a reserve unit, you kind of have this built-in networking uh, with guys who are at the airlines, because most, most of the reserve units have airline jobs already. There's guys in there that work part-time for Southwest or, or full-time for Southwest, part-time at the unit, right? Uh, active duty, I didn't know anyone, you know, uh, who actually, so do your best to network uh, and make contacts and tell them, just be upfront with people. Hey, do you mind if I call you in a year or two for a recommendation? And I've never heard anyone say no, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I always felt like when I was first getting out, I kind of felt like it was a bit of a, in, like I was putting an imposition on this person to write me a recommendation. But then after going through the process, I realized I needed 17 people to write me recommendations. I now owe it to the next, the next group to write them recommendations, you know? Is it really 17? Well, I mean, I knew three or four guys at Southwest I called up. I knew three or four guys at Delta okay. that I called up, you know? So uh, at most of the airlines, internal recommendations are uh, more valued than external. So, I mean, as I applied for all the different airlines, I was calling up uh, anyone I knew. And so I probably called up seven people for six, seven people from each airline to get recommendations for those airlines. You know, I called up people I hadn't talked to in 10 years and they were all great. They didn't give me any problems. They just said, Hey, this is what it's like in my airline. I think that you'd fit in well and sure. I'll write it here. I'll send you the link. This works for somebody that everybody likes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, have never had a class A mishap. <laughs> what about what about corporate Mario? Is it the same thing? Just you got to know some people, and how do you get in? Yeah, I'd say I say it's even more so. I mean, it's you, you really have to know somebody. Uh, probably within the department itself to get at least an interview. That's usually how it, how it works. 
uh, a lot of time we, you know, most corporate departments already know who they're going to hire next or who they're going to reach out to. So, you know, at least in the bigger, bigger corporate departments. Um, but yeah, it's just getting that networking done, you know, just try to talk to people, um, you know, try to get tours of, of outfits. If you can, if you can, if you're recurrent with somebody and you, you know, say, Hey, can I come take a tour of your facility? You know, that works really well. Um, but yeah, right now it's, there's, you know, there's a lot of pilots on the market. Um, and you know, if you're not typed in the, in the aircraft that the, the department has, it's, it's hard to get, a, a, you know, to get a job there. It doesn't mean it can't happen. I've seen it happen before, but, um, you know, they are like, you know, the airlines drive everything. So like Jesse was saying, when the recovery comes, once the airlines start hiring again, we'll start hiring again because, uh, you know, there's just, a there's less of a pool to pull from. So right. our, our, our set, you know, our, our industry is also driven by the airline industry as well. You know, they kind of drive everything because they're the big hiring, you know, mechanisms in, you know, in aviation. Yeah, the, the other thing I would say, Justin, too, is, and one of the things I thought made a big difference for me to get uh, hired, I had my, my applications out there for probably three months. They were, you, you go through a, uh, an online system. And finally, uh, this conference came around. It's called Women in Aviation. 100 women and 4,000 men there trying to get jobs. It was weird, you know, but you, you actually, this is the one time where you get to, you get to go to these, I think the, the way women in aviation worked was uh, uh, you got to have three airlines that you chose that you wanted to sit down with. I, I sat down with uh, Southwest, Delta, and United. And it was a two and a half minute, I call it an, an elevator interview, right? Mm -hmm. If you were on an elevator with someone and you could talk to them for 45 seconds to three minutes, you know, it's a binary interview. Do they like you or don't they? And mm -hmm. then they go and pull your, your resume out of the, uh, the bin and then they look at it. I went to women in aviation. I had uh, mm -hmm. Delta called me within three days, Southwest within a week, United within. So that conference mattered. It mattered. Well, you know, and there's a couple different ones. There's women in aviation is a big one. Uh, I think it's OBAP organization of black airline pilots. And there's one more that I'm not, I'm not, I forget the name of it. So, but those, those conferences, you get to, you, this is your chance to do direct. I think at the Delta guy that I talked to was the number two guy uh, in charge of hiring at Delta. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. And I'm glad I didn't because I probably would have been a little, <laughs> little more uh, nervous, but you, this is your chance to actually interact with someone who can actually pull your resume out of the bin of the, you know, 10,000 resumes. I think at the time that I went to this conference that, you know, United was saying they had 10,000 resumes on file, you know, FedEx was saying they had 12,000, you know, it's, you know, Mario was saying he got two out of two out of 700 applicants where well, you're trying for 20 out of 10,000, you know, the, re the reality is not all the people who put their applications are in are hundred percent qualified, but this is your chance to interact with them and they pull your resume and they will get it. And those things matter too. So uh, I would recommend going to one of those when you think you're actually competitive. Don't waste the, the money to go to one of these conferences if you're not competitive. But as soon as you are, start going to those things. They matter. Were the women pissed that there's 4,000 men there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it didn't <laughs> seem to matter. I, mean, it didn't seem to, I, I was, I, once again, <laughs> I thought I was abusing the system. Uh, but everyone said, no, you have to go to these. You have to go to these. And that's the, the truth of the matter is you have to go to these conferences. 
you know, and some of them are, are uh, just some of them are for military. Some of them aren't, you know, I would just recommend, you know, talking to some of these, talk to some other people that have gone to these conferences and, and see what they think about it, you know, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was weird. It was different to go there to a women in, a women in aviation conference and see no women. <laughs> there was, it was, it was very, <laughs> there were 4,000 guys there. And <laughs> <laughs> So, Julian, you got any questions for these guys? Um, yeah, well, for all you guys, since you're in the same um, Air Force class, what uh, do you guys train in Cessnas when you first started flying, or did you have what plane did you guys fly in when you learned? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Mario. We're need oh, yeah. Watching. We uh, well, we we went through. Uh, yeah, we had a very unique type of. Uh, well, Justin and, and Jeff, they did. They were glider instructors there at the academy, so they had a lot of flying background while they were there. Um, for us, we all went through flight screening in uh, what was called a Slingsby Firefly. Uh, the Air Force called it a T3, and it was a, a new program to move away from the Cessna 172s, a single-engine aerobatic trainer. And uh, that's what we kind of, uh, you know, that was our introduction. You know, it took us all the way to solo. Um, and then with a check ride at the end and going through a whole, um, acrobatic profile, basically the same thing that you would see in T-37s when you went to, uh, uh, pilot training. So it, it really prepared us well, but unfortunately the, and the program I, I think was on the right path, but, um, unfortunately the airplane had a few quirks with it up at, uh, I don't know if they figured out exactly what it is, but they had three fatal crashes up there. It killed uh, three IPs and three students and then they cut the program so i think back what they're doing now is they that they could break for about 10 15 years and they were going through the private sector that put the cadets through um yeah getting their ppl with you know through a Cessna through a local um flight school but now they've brought it back now they do them in cirruses um and i'm not sure if they're doing any acro maybe you guys know that but um but yeah that's how we that's how we started in that and then you only get about maybe 30 hours in that and then you're right into the t37 or i guess now nowadays it's the t6 so uh you're right into it not a whole lot of hours before you get to pilot training wow. i guess like being in the industry like any like innovations that you guys see like within either the corporate company or just within the airlines like innovations in planes do they kind of tell you guys about that like what's coming next that you might have to learn and train on just like new new aircraft or new new engines that are going in did they mention anything like that for drones are we going to switch to drone drone piloted commercial aviation i i honestly i can't imagine anyone ever getting on an airplane knowing it's completely flown by a computer i think everyone who gets on there loves the fact that there's automation that is safety related, but at the end of the day, they also want to know that there's a human being up there that has control of the plane. That's, I would have a hard time giving up that control and, and saying, I'm going to sit on a plane that's completely drone operated. I don't think that'll ever happen. Yeah. It's Tesla. I do know, uh, for instance, I've heard that uh, FedEx is spearheading a movement to move to a single pilot, mm -hmm. which would, uh, that would change the dynamics a lot too, you know, cause now you're up there alone, you know, uh, there are times where I feel like when you you're there and you're backing each other up, you it becomes a, an extra layer of safety. So you take out that extra layer of safety when you don't have two people up there looking and, and watching, you know, I, I, there's many times when I've 
you know, even as a, as a new first officer where you just like, Hey, are we supposed to be doing this? And you might raise the question. It may, you might be wrong. You might be right, but you're, you're, it's a, it's a check on the system, you know? Uh, so I would have a hard time going to single pilot cockpit, leave alone no pilot cockpit. That would be All right. I don't know about you, Mario. Yeah. Any cool innovations coming yeah. down the pipe? Yeah, just to address Julian's question, just yeah, yeah to, in order for us to like see what the new technology is out there, that's up to your department, you know, and it's you, ha it's it's up to us as a department to figure out what the new technology is. That's where we're all involved with NBAA. It's a National Business uh, Aviation Association conferences. We go to those uh, yearly. Um, it's up to us to keep up with, you know, what's happening in the industry. So, um, you know, it's really upon the you know, the, the department to figure out what the new technology is and what's out there. So we're constantly involved in a lot of, you know, different, um, you know, you know, nowadays it's, you know, with chat rooms and, uh, you know, before we go to industry conferences all around the, the country, you know, we'd spread that around the department to figure out what is out there. And then we go up to our, uh, you know, our executives and say, Hey, this is, this is what's out there. This is what we think where we need to go. So we kind of drive that ship and it's up to us to figure out what the new technology is out there. Um, as far as like uh, drone stuff, I don't, I don't think that's coming anytime soon. I can see probably like in cargo or uh, military applications, it'll probably become, you know, that, that'll probably come first is my guess. Um, but it will take a while, I think, for the flying public to, to say, hey, you know, no pilot up there. I mean, I can't say it's not going to happen. It only takes a couple generations. I mean, we don't think once about getting on a tram that doesn't have a, you know, at the airport that doesn't have a, a driver up front. I think it'll it'll happen eventually, but um, probably not in the next two decades, I don't think. Yeah, cool. Um, so I want to close out uh, with war stories, fun things that happen in aviation. There's always something that goes down. And so uh, I guess I'll start with, with Julian, like you've had uh been flying for two years now right two years yeah, yeah. Any fun any fun interesting scary stories from that time that uh you want to share with the group well flying down here in san diego is definitely really busy airspace especially for general aviation i haven't had any like too close like you know near mid-airs but some closer calls and just kind of being spooked, like, you know, being in the middle of like a steep turn or something like, Oh shit, there's a plane going by right there. I'd say like war story for my general aviation career so far, the worst has just been for my CFI check ride. Um, we outsourced a DPE from Georgia and he was only doing the check rides out of Riverside, which is a airport I've flown in and out of before just on IFR flights, but never like, you know, taken off out of their VFR and going to like a, their practice area to do all the maneuvers. So mm -hmm. I went up the night before and just kind of learned the, learned the airport and, and the airspace a little bit from the other instructors still didn't go fly. So I didn't have the money to buy a flight and spent the night in a motel six in downtown Riverside, which isn't the nicest area. And just nerves are already going for the check ride. Uh, this being my CFI initial and it's a, it's a big one. A lot of people don't, pass it on the on the first go and of course like i get woken up at like two in the morning to one of the other people in the motel six screaming at someone trying to break into their van and it's just super loud like the whole night i was like oh geez this is 
this is not looking good. Like, got like about three, three and a half hours of good sleep that night and had to be at the airport at six, make sure the plane was all good and everything was set up for the check ride and end up going up flying with this guy. Luckily, he did most of the flying because it was like for the CFI check ride, you can, they, they'll do some of the flying for you and just see how you instruct through it all. Um, but it's just at this Lake Matthews practice area, which I had never flown in before. And they have their own little frequency for the air to air for all the, uh, all the planes to be talking to each other there. And of course it's over a small little lake in Riverside area. And there's about four or five planes flying around there. And the DP was maybe like an hour into the flight. He was so over how busy the traffic was just from doing our maneuvers and stuff. He's like, Oh, I'll just go back to the landings. You're good. So that, uh, it was a huge relief when I got done with it. I got my CFI because I had that terrible night of sleep before and I was just a wreck and uh, the traffic in the area kind of helped me a little bit, get the check ride done faster. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I remember the stress of pilot training because in the air force, um, no matter how well you were doing, they always said you're never more than three rides away from elimination. If you had three consecutive failures, you're out of the program. And I just lived in fear for 13 months. <laughs> that I was going to wash out of that program. So I feel it. <laughs> Mario, what about you? You've flown all over the world, corporate, Air Force, done everything. There's got to be some fun yeah. story. Uh, yeah, I got a, I got a bazillion. Um, I guess a, a, a funny one, uh, I had, uh, I was a, a brand new aircraft commander in the C-5, and I got this uh, trip handed to me. It was kind of high visibility. C-5 like a giant. C-5. Cargo yes, air. big cargo plane. Yeah, it's, it's, it's massive. It's the largest plane in the Air Force. Uh, and we were taking 70 doctors from Andrews Air Force Base in D.C. to Uzbekistan, in uh, Tashkent, Uzbekistan. Uh, so it was a big it was a big uh, program that the uh, State Department ran. So they had the Deputy uh, Secretary of the State Department out there for the first ceremony, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other uh, congressional uh, folks out there So with all these doctors. And uh, we had to do, we were going to have to fly this stuff nonstop. It, we were full of just medical, probably about 100,000 pounds of medical equipment. And these 70 doctors are going nonstop from Andrews to Uzbekistan. So that required an air refueling over uh, Scotland in the middle of the night uh, with two KC-135s. So um, we, it was a lot to plan. And uh, we got there with the first uh, uh, KC-135 tanker. And we're doing our air-to-air refueling, and, and, and it gets pretty bumpy back there. And the passengers sit in the very back of the C-5, so the tail jumps around quite a bit back there because uh, you have a lot of bow effects between the two aircraft. And you sit backwards, and there's no windows, and it's a bunch of civilian doctors that have never flown in a military plane before. <laughs> so, uh, we, we're, so, you know, this is about – it takes about 20 – we had two tankers, and it had, had to take uh, – 90,000 pounds for each. So it's about 20 minutes per plane to air refuel. So about 40 minutes total. And so we're almost halfway done with the first one. And the first doctor in the back just lets loose and projectile vomits on the person and seat in front of, in front of them. So, oh my God. Uh, that one, you can imagine what you see. It's a, it's a small cabin up there. You know, not a lot of airflow. It's already hot. <laughs> you know, it's and cold. And uh, so you, you guys have seen Stand By Me, right? Where they have that that scene where, you know, someone pukes and then the other person pukes. So all of a sudden back there, we have 10 people puking in the back. And, it, and it's, getting, it's getting so bad 
there's the, the 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 troop compartment and, and the flight deck are separated. They're they're not they're they're not connected because you know they have all the uh, the, the aircraft equipment between the center of them. But the smell is going down into the cargo compartment and coming up into the flight deck now. So now we're smelling puke. Uh, up front and people oh. are starting to almost get sick up front uh, all our crew so I, I get done with the first air refueling I'm flying it and you know I get off the tanker and um, Mildenhall air, uh, air Base is just underneath us in England and so I'm asking the load masters in the back and like hey do we need to divert to I mean are these people going to be okay because this guy threw up and passed out um, so I said you guys got you guys got 60 other doctors back here someone tell me in the meantime, in the meantime, we're running out of we're running out of air refueling track. We have to get it done before we, you know, before we hit it. And, uh, you know, otherwise we can't continue the, the trip and we'd have to divert to get gas. So um, as I'm waiting to coordinate this, they finally stabilized the, pe- the, the one guy who's passed out. He said he's just dehydrated. So they strap everybody in back there. And in the meantime, I was going to do a seat swap and have the other guy air refuel because it's it's pretty fatiguing. But we didn't have time for it, so I had to. I had to. Go, I was still in the left seat, and I. I had to go up and get the the second uh, tankers full of gas. So I, I ended up spending 40, 45 minutes on the boom at night, no moon in the weather, air refueling uh, for forty minutes. And I think I got done. My my flight suit was soaked through. It's you know it smelled like puke, and I'm like I'm out of here. And I just took a nap after that. So. <laughs> That was enough of that for that flight. And we still had another seven hours to go to Uzbekistan. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Oh, so, poor loadmasters back there had to clean up all the way, just be in the middle of all that mess back there. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. Wow. The 72s are sounding pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Like Julian's like, I'm going to stay in 172. Let me use the restroom real quick. That's right. Only you for the airport. One of the highlights of mine, as uh, thinking of one that was kind of it, sticks out you know, as a memorable flight. It was a DC-9 flight. And in the DC-9, we used to sit alert and they would call you up and they could call you up any time of night and say, hey, you got this. So they call me up and they tell me you're going to Tripler, which Tripler is the, uh, from Japan, it's the army hospital out in uh, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So you, usually that's a pretty good trip for you. You know, you, you hey, I get to go to Hawaii. And I show up at the jet uh, and our patient is going to be in Saipan. So we have to fly to, from uh Yakota to Saipan, pick up our patient, and then start the hop over to uh, to Tripler. And typically, it would involve a fuel stop in uh, usually at Wake Island mm-hmm. or somewhere else that you'd have to stop and get gas. So, but I show up, and the we we, we were one squadron. The uh, people in the back were a different squadron, and they were the nurses and the medical technicians and. I show up in like the chief of infectious medicines there. Like, why are you flying? Because you're not supposed to be flying tonight. And she's like, yeah, we have a special uh, special patient. And it uh, turns out they're taping off the back of the airplane with like plastic sheeting. <laughs> what? You're, you're going to be fine. <laughs> with duct tape, you know? Because the, uh, the patient we had was actually coming out of the island of Tinian, uh, which if you're familiar, that's where the... Uh, 
the airplane actually took off with the nukes to bomb Japan. And this guy had been, uh, it was a State Department mission. He wasn't actually military. So the State Department got involved because he had a flesh-eating bacteria that had uh, uh, mutated or morphed or it started off as a venereal disease. (laughs) (laughs) It's a likely story. (laughs) Sure it did. It doesn't matter. I just that was like the one trip where I wanted to stay in the front of the jet the whole time. That's when you start asking yourself, you your duct tapes enough? Yeah. <laughs> could, you, could you double bag this one? <laughs> so that was one that stuck out in, in uh, memory wise was taking a man a uh, guy with a flesh eating bacteria. It started uh, out as a venereal disease. It started. Uh, you can so you can imagine where the flesh eating was going on. No, I do not want to imagine that. <laughs> and so we took them out to Hawaii. So that, that kind of sticks cool. out as one of my. Those do, those do sound like memorable experiences. So, Julian, I, Ella will probably be pleased that you are no longer thinking of an Air Force career. <laughs> as a potential next step. It's uh, it's not fully written off, you know. See how this year goes, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know we know people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, those were good stories, and uh, thanks everyone for joining me and uh, sharing your stories about your careers. And uh, good luck. Sounds like the, the world will get back to normal eventually, and then everyone will be hiring, and we'll all live happily ever after. All right. Thanks, you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. All right. See you. Thanks, Justin. Bye.